Campfire Classics is a classic literature podcast. However, your hosts will occasionally use not-so-classy language and immature humor to describe very mature situations. As such, listener discretion is advised. Hi, I'm Ken Sandberg. And I'm Heather Michelle Lawler. Welcome to Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. I'll be there for you when the rain starts to fall. I'll be there for you. I ate Jennifer Aniston's salad. Whoa! Not the euphemism I was ready to start today's episode with, but do tell. But I did. I ate it, and it was delicious and juicy, and very, I've heard that about very her healthy her salad. salad. Yeah, and then the internet. <laughs> so hi everybody, welcome to Campfire Classics, um, where Heather makes up weird songs at the beginning of the show that tend to lead us into something. And except that this time she didn't make it up, the Rembrandts did. Well, I I don't know if I was really uh, was it close enough. <laughs> It was exactly the song oh, through good. several lines. Oh, good. Anyway, uh, <laughs> so the internet has been kind of blowing up recently um, about Jennifer Aniston's salad, the one she used to eat on the set of Friends all the time. And Ken and I have been eating uh, very healthily and whatnot. And I just went on a grocery trip and was like, I want to try Jennifer Aniston's salad. So I came home. I bought all the stuff. Minus the pistachios, and I uh, made it, and it was delish. And I just finished eating it, which is why that was the first thing on my mind. There is <laughs> no way, no way to say the phrase Jennifer Aniston salad without it sounding dirty. <laughs> I d- That's why I like it so much. I don't know why. I don't know why. A little fresh squeeze of lemon juice, and it's like, mm, it doesn't make mm, it better. That doesn't. That <laughs> makes it better. And the. <laughs> it's. Mm. You, hmm. <laughs> but I highly recommend it. It was delicious. Uh, I cut the oil down and uh, did not do the pistachios. I added tomatoes instead. Uh, but it was really delish. <laughs> it was yummy. So that that's what I'm up to. What are you up to, Ken? Um, what am I up to? I am drinking a little bit of Maker's Mark. Yes. Uh, I have been playing a lot of piano, and as a result, my forearms are very tired. Ah. Because, um, wiggling your fingers. Because wiggling my fingers. <laughs> and that also is kind of, we're having a lot of fun and here. That's really. what I've been doing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've been enjoying the Doctor Who rewatch where we're yes. in the midst of. Yeah, I decided, because um, now it's all on HBO. And I never got to see the Peter Capaldi, uh, like, generation. Um, and then I only saw the first, like, five episodes of Jodie Whittaker. So I was like, well, before they start the new one, I should, you know. Go ahead and catch up. Go ahead up. and catch up. Yeah. But I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to start from the beginning again. Because I've only seen it once. Um, and so I've been watching a few on my own. But most of the time, I, I enjoy watching it with Ken. Because he knows so much about Doctor Who. And uh, he's the true fan that got me involved. Even though my dad always loved it, too. I'm um, that annoying fan who... Um we get to a really cool part of the episode and I'm like, hang on, pause it. Did you know? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I like that stuff. That's why I like this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> because I like when things lead to other things because that's how my brain works. It's usually going 100 miles a minute. So I uh, 
I don't mind multiple information going in at the same time. If we'd thought about it, we could have um, set up microphones and done a podcast during the Doctor Who rewatch. What, like a recap podcast? Like a, a, a fan cast. A fan cast. Yeah. No, I think with that one, you have to do a video because... Like, so one of my favorite uh, TikTok accounts uh, that I've been watching is the this brother and sister. And it's usually the brother. I think he only has the sister on when she's over watching it. Um, he's watching Game of Thrones for the first time. Ah, uh, yeah. Like currently, like as in like now and does not know anything about it. Um, like other than like a few things, but has somehow gone spoiler free because when it first came out was like not interested at all. And a friend convinced them to watch it. Um, and he does this with other movies, like other things too. But the Game of Thrones one is my favorite because like you watch this person watch the Red Wedding for the first time or like the like, um, uh, like I don't want to give anything away. I don't want to spoil anything even sure. though it's been out for a long time. But like you watch people watch certain episodes and it's just hilarious because their faces, it's their faces that are funny because it's like, <gasps> and I know, I know for a fact. I make hilarious, stupid faces when we're watching shows. So, Hey, campers. What TV <laughs> series would you be interested in watching along with us? How about a Saved by the Bell rewatch oh God, podcast? no. Please don't do that to me. Oh, no. I mean, there already is. The, is it a podcast that's Zach Morris' trash? Or uh, I don't think that technically qualifies as a podcast. There's, but I don't know. I don't like know what a, counts. It's like a YouTube. It's a YouTube yeah. series. Um, but like, yeah, uh, I, I would, I would do that. But I'd, I, I would have to have video. I think you gotta, you gotta have the simulcast of like what's going on on the screen and the visual. Yeah. Because the visual is half the funny. Like. <laughs> the visual is half the funny, which is why this podcast is, is only half. <laughs> The other half is literature. <laughs> Welcome to Campfire Classics, a literary, sometimes funny podcast where we take stories out of the public domain and read them to you, sight unseen. That's right. We cold read these stories for you and make fun of penis jokes along the way. We make fun of penis jokes or do we make up penis jokes? Both? A little bit of both, yeah. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Euphemisms, euphemisms abound. Yeah. Campfire classics where euphemisms abound. Um, and uh, yeah, and that's what we do. But before we get to this week's story, which I have chosen for Heather, and I think it likely to be a doozy, uh, oh. uh, I, uh, I wanted to get through uh, this little segment first, this week's episode of Clown Corner. I've seen a lot of clowns on things recently. Yeah. Like Ken and I have been like traveling or like walking around the city and stuff. You see like like random clown graffiti or clown paintings and stuff. And I'm like, oh, look what, oh, look what you've done to me. <laughs> well, if you're new to the podcast uh, and if we're doing our job right, every episode would be somebody's first episode. Or if you just haven't tuned in in a while and you decided to pick back up now, Clown Corner is a segment that I started a few months back. Um, where I talk about clowns, and since no one has told me to stop, I still do it. So this week... I also wasn't here when we started this, <laughs> That's why I said I started it <laughs> a couple of months back. It's all my fault. Uh, so this week, Clown Corner is brought to you by lawsuits, because legal action is always funny. 
Wait, what? <laughs> um, so in the the last time I hosted Clown Corner, I talked about Ronald McDonald. Ah, uh, yes. And this week, I'm going to stay kind of in that world. Uh, as wow, I mentioned. Three weeks in a row, we have mentioned Ronald McDonald yep. on Spotify. If McDonald's doesn't sponsor us, then The I, world is okay. We don't no, really we need don't. McDonald's as a sponsor. I mean, I'll take their money. Mm. <laughs> so as I mentioned, McDonald Land is the world in which Ronald and his friends and enemies, yes, Ronald McDonald has enemies, all live. Yeah, the, the, the grumpy guy in black and stripes. Yeah, that's what they call him, the grumpy guy in black and stripes. <laughs> remember his name? The Burglar? The Hamburglar. Hamburglar. There it is. Uh, So anyway, named after the original founders of the company, Richard and Maurice McDonald. McDonald Land is, you know. um, They started the burger joint in 1940. It wasn't until the early 60s when Ray Kroc bought it and turned it into what we know today. But you can watch the movie starring Batman if you want to learn more about that. Starring Batman. He's going to be back, too. I know. If you I'm watch the Super Bowl, you know what commercial we're talking weirdly about. Weirdly stoked about what? that. Uh, so early commercials for McDonald's featured Ronald foiling the plots of the Hamburglar, Evil Grimace, and other characters who were attempting to steal food. And he was commended for his efforts by the likes of Officer Big Mac, who you could crawl around inside of like a cage yes, in the McDonald's play I place. remember. Yeah. And Mayor McCheese, who last time you said That's you don't remember. I don't know. I remember um, off, off Mr. Big Mac, but I don't remember the other one. I, I'm, I'm going to continue what I had researched and planned to say. But as I was um, scrolling through Facebook earlier this afternoon, after I'd already done all this research, I ran across a thing that was... Um, the, it was a meme, and in the center of it, it was the Confederate flag. Ah. And it was, here are a few things that lasted longer than the Confederacy. And it was a bunch of, you know, whatever, silly thing. Filming for Lord of the Rings. It took longer to film the Lord of the Rings movies than, yeah. than the Confederacy lasted. But also, Mayor McCheese was the mascot of McDonald's for long- longer <laughs> than the Confederacy existed. I love that that came up on Facebook. Yep. <laughs> like, what? Um, so also, anyway, fuck the Confederacy. So I didn't realize how deep a cut Mayor McCheese really was until you didn't recognize him a couple of weeks ago, and then I saw that thing. But now I understand why he really was only a major player for a relatively short period of time. Wow. See, in 1973, Sid and Marty Croft sued McDonald's, claiming that the entire McDonald Land premise plagiarized their television show, the most fucked up television show in history, H.R. Puffin Stuff. Oh, shit. I've watched that high before. I think that is the only way anyone has watched it since 1976. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm, I'm talking like 20 years ago. I feel like we found, was YouTube around? Yeah, I mean, it had to be. I feel like I was like 25. So yeah, like YouTube had just become a big thing. And I'm pretty sure I watched an episode or two of that really fucking high. Yeah. (laughs) And yes, super weird. For our listeners not familiar with HR Puff and stuff, um, it was a children's puppet show, um, kind of in the vein of like... 
what? Some some twisted place between Barney and the Muppets or Barney something? Barney and the Muppets and like Fraggle Rock. And, yeah. Uh, uh, but it was like very hippy dippy. Oh, it's really creepy. Just like, look for it. HR Puff and was, stuff. It's yeah. Everyone that was that's that's drugs. It's it's <laughs> it's pretty wild. Um, it's H period R period. Puffin stuff. P U F N S T U F. I mean, they're literally telling you to get high. Puffin um, stuff. Like, come on. So, uh, in particular, the Crofts claimed that Mayor McCheese was a direct ripoff of their title character, H.R. Puffin stuff, who was the mayor. And apparently, the original version of H.R. Puff, of, of uh, Mayor McCheese, looked way too similar to H.R. Puff and stuff. There were a bunch of other things that were going on. Anyway, it was a hotly contested suit, but in the end, McDonald's was ordered to pay H.R. Puff and stuff's creators $50,000. Oh my God. McDonald's thought that was unfair and appealed the case. They took it up to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. In the appeal, the ruling, they they agreed $50,000 was not fair. McDonald's owed the creepy puppet show a million dollars and was ordered to discontinue or significantly redesign nearly half of their commercial characters and stop running all commercials until that happened. Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. See, McDonald's now, if they got sued for something for $50,000, you would never even know about it. No, they just... Pay it off. It, it, it would like, just be like, whatever, sure, whatever. <laughs> like, I love that it was so early in them. They're like, no. And like, maybe they didn't. Like, on it, like, there are times that people are like, that had to be like stolen. And the person's like, I swear, I never even heard that or saw that. And well, like, no one could claim that they had never heard of it because the actor who played oh H.R. No. Puff and stuff played Grimace in those original commercials. Oh, shit. Well, then, that's some sketchy-ass shit. All right. Anyway, right around this time, there were a few major... Also, Grimace is one of the least scary, uh, like villains ever he looks like a purple teletubby so i was actually just about to talk about <laughs> like that like an overweight teletubby because that right around this time there were a few major redesigns including evil grimace the four-armed purple monster who stole kids milkshakes and cokes who became grimace he yeah. lost two of his arms and he just became that weird purple triangle thing he's he looks like a, he looks like tinky winky like went off his diet for the like the winter <laughs> yep. like it's like tinky winky in hibernation and like good for him yeah <laughs> Um, by the early 1980s, after a few attempts to change the character, Mayor McCheese was dropped along with Captain Crook, the professor, and Officer Big Mac. Officer Big Mac's not around anymore? Nope. Uh, his image can still be seen in the play place. Yeah. But, but he is no longer okay. officially a, a, okay. a resident of McDonald Land. Uh, some oh other God. just interesting things about McDonald Land. Uh, Frank Welker. Things I never thought I'd be talking about. Frank Welker, famously the voice of Scooby Doo, yeah. among many, many others, voiced McDonald Land's extraterrestrial visitor from the 1980s, Cosmic, as well as some of the Nugget Buddies. The Nugget Buddies? That sounds like what you do after you've eaten too much McDonald's and you have to go to the bathroom. (laughs) I gotta go drop some Nugget Buddies. buddies. (laughs) Uh, Vern Troyer 
played Sunday, Ronald's pet dog. Oh, God. <laughs> and watch out in the coming weeks for Uncle O'Grimacy, Grimace's uncle who just loves those shamrock shakes. Oh, my God. All right. <laughs> Weird. Anyway, that is this week's Clown Corner. That, that. Some of the stuff we talk on this podcast, I'm like, I would have never, if you'd asked me, like, what's a topic you'll probably never have a deep conversation about? <laughs> McDonald Land is probably one of the ones yep. I would have said. Yeah. <laughs> and we've had two. <laughs> Once the, the ball starts rolling, you just got to well, let it keep going. Synchronicities. It's, yeah. it's life. life uh, I feel like synchronicities or deja vu, like, is a different thing, but similar. Um, when, like, thing coincidence happens. Uh, I feel like you're you're on the right path when yeah. things keep lining up like that. So good. All right. So we're on the right path. All right. With this podcast, we've Great. got three episodes in a row about McDonald's. My parents did have to eat a McDonald's for the first time in like years last night because the town they were staying in on their cross country journey, the only restaurant open was McDonald's. And my mom's like, they don't even have salads anymore. It's okay. You know that the salad has more calories yes. than the cheeseburger, yeah. right? Just get the cheeseburger and like a small, get a Happy Meal. Get a Happy Meal. Get a Happy Meal. Actually, so the thing I discovered, because there there was a while when I was road tripping a lot, and sometimes when you're road tripping and you're starving, McDonald's is just the only thing that makes sense. Yeah. But what I discovered while on the road is that if you order, even if you don't think you're going to be able to eat the whole thing, everything McDonald's is cheap enough, it's fine. If you order their double quarter pounder with cheese... They don't keep any of those on stock, so they make it fresh. fresh. So you get the double quarter pounder with cheese, and as much as anything that you can order at McDonald's is like fresh, fresh, like hot pipe. The cheese is all melty. The burger, like, that's pretty good. All right, order the double quarter pounder with cheese. Yeah, I uh, my one of my road trip snacks is the fries. That's when I like treat myself to yeah. the crack fries that are McDonald's fries. Anyway, McDonald's does not sponsor this podcast, so we're going to move on. Uh- Moving on to what we're actually <laughs> supposed to do. As I said. Now all I want is French fries. <laughs> <laughs> uh, as I said, um, every week we read a short story that we pull from public domain and make fun of all of the weird shit that happens in it. Uh, and I've chosen a story for Heather to read this week. But before we get into the story, I wanted to give just a little bit of background about this week's author who nearest. I can tell we have never read before. Ellis Parker Butler was born in Muscatine, Iowa in December 1869. Well, howdy, you fellow Iowan. (laughs) As a relatively young man, he bounced out of Iowa and moved to NYC. Gee, I wonder why. Well, Queens, but you know, New York. That's New York City. (laughs) He was an artist. He couldn't afford to live in Manhattan even back then. I get it. (laughs) He helped found the Authors League of America, which is now called the Authors Guild, and the Dutch Treat Club, a similar organization for illustrators. All right. His connections to contemporaries like Mark Twain, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Edgar Rice Burroughs helped him publish more than 30 books and 2,000 stories and essays, which were published in over 225 different magazines. You know what? The fact that he lived in Queens and not Manhattan and he has was that successful just shows how fucked up Manhattan prices are. <laughs> <laughs> we're actually going to get to that oh. in a minute here. Oh, great. Cool. Um, 
he was success. He was a successful author for over 40 years, writing poetry, short stories, novels, and nonfiction articles. His most famous character was a man named Philo Gubb. He became so popular in serialized stories in magazines that much like Doyle to Sherlock or LeBlanc to Arsène Lupin and so many other authors who have developed a signature meal ticket character, Butler tried to kill Gubb, but the public outcry prevented it. (laughs) I love it. (laughs) Uh, His most popular story called Pigs is Pigs was one that I very nearly assigned for you today, but I picked a different one at the last minute. Well, so, Pigs is Pigs. Pigs he is knows. Pigs. He's from Iowa. Yep. It sounds very funny, like just the title alone. I'm on board, but yeah. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a bit of a satire thing and perhaps we'll, if this story goes well, then we have Pigs is Pigs to look forward to in the future. Right. And yet for all of that, the reason he lived in Queens is not because he couldn't afford to live in Manhattan. Okay. He never considered himself a real writer at all. Okay. In fact, he spent almost his entire life working as a banker, and he considered his local community in Queens, his community outreach, his philanthropy, and his local government activism to be far more important to him than his writing career. So the reason he stayed in Queens had nothing to do with money. It's because that's where his people were. Do you know where in Queens he was? Uh, Flushing, I believe. Oh, so kind of far out. Um, Flushing. Especially back then. At least he's buried in the Flushing Cemetery. Oh, then I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. That's not far from Yonkers and those areas. Which were very popular back then, because they mm-hmm. were because back then Flushing what was the eighteen hundreds? Back then it was like a cute little like suburban area. Yeah, like it wasn't the Flushings we like Flushing we know today that is like kind of like overrun and like lots mm-hmm. of you know it it was cute. It was like is like I look at like Yonkers and like in Hello Dolly times and sure. I'm like oh it's adorable and then yeah. you go to Yonkers and you're like. The fuck is this strip mall hell? Yeah. Like, nothing against anyone from Yonkers, yeah. Whereas I hear More flushing, flushing and the only thing I think of is the nanny. Exactly. Like she's from She was working in a bridal shop in Flushing yeah. Queens when her boyfriend kicked her out in one of those crushing scenes. Yeah, that's where she's from. Like and yeah. like look at like the whole joke of that show is that she's like low class and yep. like like tacky and yeah. That's that's kind of everything I was able to find on him. He had a, by all accounts, very happy, contented, friendly, worked hard kind of life. Yeah. Writing was essentially the third list on, on the list of things, third on his list of things that were important to him. But yeah, well, 2,000 like stories. That he was just very good at. Yeah. <laughs> like he, it was basically he had an Etsy page for his writing. Yeah. <laughs> like he was a banker and he worked in the local government, but like on, in his free time, he'd get in a hammock and like, you know, write a story and then sell it, sell it to some somebody who wanted it. Yeah. So he was apparently on vacation or something up in Massachusetts in 1937 when he died and he he's now buried in Flushing Cemetery right. in Queens. Today, you will be reading from 1913 the first story of Philo Gubb, his most popular character, right. entitled Philo Gubb, the Correspondence School Detective, a.k.a. The hard-boiled egg. Ooh! Let's start this fire. Yeah! Philo 
Gob, the Correspondent School Detective, The Hard-Boiled Egg, by Ellis Parker Butler. Chunk, chunk. <laughs> Walking close along the wall to avoid the creaking floorboards, Philo Gubb, paper hanger and student of the Rising Sun Detective Agency's correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we go. First sentence. Rollicking let's, start. Let's start that all again. Walking close along the wall to avoid the creaking floorboards, Philo Gubb, paper hanger and student of the Rising Sun Detective Agency's correspondent. <laughs> you got it right in the title. <laughs> it's just a longer sentence than I want it to be. Yeah. <laughs> All right. And there's still more of it after you get through that I know. word. One more. Here we go. Uh, just before we get to it, I actually looked up because I saw that he was a paper hanger. Um, it was in his yeah, character paper description. Hanger? Paper hanger is one of two things. Either it means he is someone who professionally hangs wallpaper. Okay. Or it means he's a person who professionally writes fraudulent checks. Uh, I guess we're going to find out. <laughs> I'm guessing that he's a yes, wallpaper hanger. Yes, I would agree. Um, or he'd be a... I guess he'd be a detective like the way uh, Frank Abagnale Jr. is. Yeah. <laughs> like he was a fraudulent check person and then became part of the FBI. Yeah, but I'm thinking he's a he's a... Basically, he... He's like a house painter, except yeah, for the inside. Like extra money. Yeah. Walking close along the wall to avoid the creaking floorboards, Philo Gubb, paper hanger and student of the Rising Sun Detective Agency's Correspondent School of Detecting, tiptoed to the door of the bedroom he shared with the mysterious Mr. Critz. In appearance, Mr. Gubb was tall and gaunt, reminding one of a modern Don Quixote or a human flamingo. <laughs> <laughs> I always think of those two in, um, in one thought. Uh, so he's played by Tommy Toon. <laughs> yeah. In the musical yeah, version the musical of the Philo, Philo Gubb. Gubb Detective Agency. Yes, it's Tommy Toon, and there's a lot of tap dancing. I'm on board already. <laughs> By nature, Mr. Gubb was the gentlest and most simple-minded of men. Now, bending his long, angular body almost double, he placed his eye to a crack in the door panel and stared into the room. Within, just out of the limited area of Mr. Gubb's vision, Roscoe Critz paused in his work and listened carefully. He heard the sharp whistle of Mr. Gubb's breath as it cut against the sharp edge of the crack in the panel, and he knew he was being spied upon. He placed his chubby hands on his knees and smiled at the door with a red flush of triumph spread over his face. <laughs> Through the crack in the door, Mr. Gubb could see the top of the washstand beside which Mr. Critz was sitting, but he could not see Mr. Critz. As he stared, however, he saw a plump hand appear and pick up, one by one, the articles lying on the washstand. I love that Mr. Chris <laughs> knows he's there, um, and I'm assuming knows he's a detective, so now he's just fucking with him. Like, is this like yeah. a training exercise? Like, I, I don't know. We d I mean, we don't know anything about either of these guys well, yet, well, really. Well, we know Mr. Chris, who is his roommate, yeah. knows he's being spied on. 
but he's he hasn't called him out yet. Yeah. He's letting him watch. We also know that Mr. Gubb does not know much about Mr. Kritz because he even called him the mysterious Mr. Even though they're Kritz. roommates. Well, I'm guessing they're like flatmates. Yeah. Like they live in the same like, you know. This could also like, be a temporary housing situation. Yeah. yeah. It could be that they're living like living in a hotel yeah, room. Yeah, it's like one of those uh, like boarding houses yeah. or something. There were, first, seven or eight half shells of English walnuts. Second, a rubber shoe heel out of which a piece had been cut. Third, a small rubber ball, no larger than a pea. Fourth, a paper-bound book. And lastly, a large and glittering brick of yellow gold. As the hand withdrew the golden brick, Mr. Gubb pressed his face closer against the door in an effort to see more. And suddenly, the door flew open, and Mr. Gubb sprawled on his hands and knees on the worn carpet of the bedroom. <laughs> there now, said Mr. Kritz. There now, serves you right. Hope you hurt yourself. <laughs> I was like, I was going to say, I was like, he's, I wonder how long he's going to like string this guy along. About that long, apparently. About that long. Mr. Gubb arose slowly, like a giraffe, and brushed his knees. Why, he asked. Snooping and sneaking like that, said Mr. Kritz crossly, scaring me to fits almost. Oh, is he? I think he's a pirate. <laughs> he talks in a I dialect. I like that, yeah, for he, sure. he's written in dialect. Yeah, he's written in dialect, so we're going in. All right. Scaring me to fits almost. How'd I know who twas? If you come in, why don't you just come in instead of snooping and sneaking and falling in that way? <laughs> As he talked, Mr. Kritz replaced the shells and the rubber heel and the rubber pea and the gold brick on the washstand. He was a plump little man with a shiny bald head and a white goatee. As he talked, he bent his head down so he might look above the glasses of his spectacles and in spite of his pretended anger, he looked like nothing so much as a kindly, benevolent old gentleman. Santa Claus. <laughs> the sort of old gentleman that keeps a small store in a small village and sells writing paper that smells of soap and candy sticks out of a glass jar with a glass cover. Super Santa. Yeah, he's Santa Claus. <laughs> he's Santa Claus with a stationery store. <laughs> That's a lot of S's. <laughs> How'd I know but what you was a detective? He asked in a gentler tone. <laughs> Does he speak English well? So there was, while I was doing research, mm -hmm. um, a quote of sorts about Philo Gubb. Okay. Uh, Mr. Butler okay. said that um, Philo Gubb is a small town paper hanger who learned his deductive technique by correspondence courses which we've already yeah. learned, and commits a major crime during every case on which he works. The murder of the English language. Oh, cool. <laughs> That's hilarious. So apparently we've got a, a um, probably a couple characters who cool. do some interesting things with English, so just be prepared for How'd that. How'd I know but what you was a detective, he said in a gentler tone. I am, said Mr. Gubb soberly, seating himself on one of the two beds. I'm putty near a detective, as you might say. So pretty near a detective? And 
If you look at the, how many syllables his pronunciation deteckative? of detective has. Yes. I'm Wait, pretty near a detective. Is Mr. Gubb 12 <laughs> or uh, 6? Detective. I'm pretty near a detective, as you might say. Ding it all, said Mr. Critz. Now I got to go and hunt another room. I can't room with no detective. Well, now, Mr. Critz, said Mr. Gubb. I don't want you to feel that way. Knowing you are a detective makes me all nervous, complained Mr. Critz. Fair enough. I don't like spending I mean, time in a room with a cop. I don't, yeah. I like, n- no matter who you are and how little or as much as you've broken the law in your life, walking by cop cars always makes me, like... A little jumpy. I always, I feel guilty no matter what. Yep. Like, and maybe that's the Catholic in me. Um, <laughs> or what, but like... I, I, I wonder if all people feel that way when they go by cops, because I always feel like I did something wrong, <laughs> or I'm going to accidentally right well, when they're right, when they're right there. All right, so Mister Mister Critz wants a new room. It makes me nervous," complained Mister Critz. "And a man in my business has to have a steady hand, don't he?" "You ain't told me what your business is," said Mister Gubb. "You needn't pretend you don't know," said Mister Critz. Any detective that saw that stuff on the washboard would know. Well, of course, said Mr. Gubb. I ain't a full detective yet. You can't look for me to guess things as quick as a full detective would. Of course, that brick sort of looks like a gold brick. It is a gold brick, said Mr. Critz. (laughs) Yes, said Mr. Gubb. But I don't mean no offense, Mr. Critz. From the way you look, I I, I sort of thought, well, that it was a gold brick you bought. Mr. Critz turned very red. (laughs) Well, what if I did buy it, he said. That ain't any reason I can't sell it, is it? Just because a man buys eggs once or twice ain't any reason he shouldn't go into the business of egg selling, is it? Just because I've bought one or two gold bricks in my day ain't any reason I shouldn't go selling them, is it? <laughs> That's some solid logic, Mr. It's reasonable, yeah. <laughs> Mr. Gubb stared at Mr. Critz with unconcealed surprise. You ain't a con man, are you, Mr. Critz? <laughs> he asked. I love that this kid is like Dennis the Menace in my brain. <laughs> He's, I mean, he's not a kid. It's he's got a job. June. It's an adult man. It's a full-ass adult man. <laughs> it's a full-ass adult man with the voice and attitude of, like, Dennis the Menace. <laughs> Mr. Which Wilson. Then, which then makes Mr. Critz Christopher Lloyd. Yeah. Or he's Mr. Wilson. He's Walter Matthau. He's Walter Matthau. <laughs> In the movie, if you haven't seen the Dennis the Menace movie from the like '90s, we've talked about it like nine times have, on this podcast. It's fucking, it's it holds up. I have watched it recently. Leah Thompson from uh, Back to the Future's in it. Mm-hmm. Like, it's a fucking great cast. And like, damn, it's it, it holds up. Anyway, if I ain't yet, there's no sign I ain't gonna be," said Mister Critz firmly. One man has as good a right to try his hand at it as another, especially when a man has had my experience in it. Mr. Gubb, there ain't hardly a con game I ain't been conned with. I've been confidenced long enough. From now on, I'm gonna to confidence other folks. 
That's what I'm gonna do. And I won't be bothered by no detective living in the same room as me. Detectives and con men don't mix no ways. No, sir. Also fair. I love it. He just like straight up came out. He's like, yeah, people con me a lot. So fuck it. I'm going to be a con man too. Yeah. Well, this is, if you, if you bully the same kid long enough, he's going to start fighting back. Well, they're going to eventually bully someone else or bite you. Yeah. Not bite you. Fight you. (laughs) They might bite bite. you. I don't know. (laughs) I don't know what they're into. I don't know. I got bullied a lot as a kid and I wasn't above biting. <laughs> Just gnashing some teeth. Motherfucker, take another swing at me. I dare you. <laughs> oh my god, he won't let go of my ankle. <laughs> well, sir, said Mr. Gobb, I can see the sense of that. But you don't need to move right away. I don't aim to start in deteketing in earnest for a couple of months yet. I got a couple of jobs of paper hanging and decorating to finish up, and I can't start in sleuthing until I get my star anyway. Yeah, he's like, I'm an office. I don't have my PI license yet. Yeah, I, I'm just in I'm just in PI school. <laughs> and I don't get my star until I get one more lesson and learn it and send in the examination paper and $5 extra for the diploma. Then I'm going at it as a regular business. It's a good business. Every day, there are more crooks. Excuse me, I didn't mean to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. No offense. I didn't want to I offend did, like, you, Is sir. crooks, is that the PC? To, are, are we good with crooks? Is that what we're saying? Criminals? Is that what we're saying today? Cons? Con man? That's all right, said Mr. Critz kindly. Call a spade a spade. If I ain't a crook yet, I hope to be soon. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know how you'd feel about it, explained Mr. Gubb. Tactfulness is strongly advised in the lessons of the Rising Sun Deteckative Agency Correspondent School of Deteketing. Slow come Ohio? asked Mr. Critz quickly. You didn't see the ad in the Hearthstone and Farmside, did you? Yes. Slocum, Ohio, said Mr. Gubb, and that is the paper I saw the ad into Big Money and Deteketing, B.S. Luth. We can make you the equal of Sherlock Holmes in 12 lessons. Why? Well, sir, said Mr. Critz, that's funny. That ad uh, was right atop of the one I saw that I studied quite considerable before I could make up my mind whether it would be best for me to become a detective and go out and get square with the fellers that sold me gold bricks and things by putting them in jail, or to even things up by sending for this book that was advertised right under the Rising Sun Correspondence School. How come I settled to do as I done was that I had a sort of stock to start with, with a first-class gold brick and some green goods I'd bought, and this book only cost a quarter of a dollar, and she's a hummer for a quarter of a dollar, a hummer. You get a hummer for a quarter? You get a hummer for a quarter? Wow. I mean, it was like the early 1900s. Fair enough, yeah, yeah, quarter yeah. Quarter was a lot of money. Quarter of a dollar is a lot of money, yeah. That was like... That was like 20 bucks, 25, 30, 40 bucks now? I don't look, know. Look up what a quarter 
1913 would be. Because I definitely just tried to Google Hummer. That's not what I meant. <laughs> uh, <laughs> also, I want to point out the name of the town in Ohio is Slocum. Better than Quickum. <laughs> Slocum 25 cent Hummers. Does it get quicker if you pay more? Do you want it to be quicker? Well, I don't know. That, do you like, want it to last? I, I guess it depends on what you're looking for. Yeah. <laughs> oh, still a bargain. Oh, yeah? Still a bargain. Just shy of eight bucks. Oh, damn. All right. Well, I mean, they are out in Flushing. So these aren't, these aren't, these aren't, <laughs> these aren't your highest, York, highest class these Hummers. These aren't Manhattan Hummers. These are, these are Flushing Queens Hummers. <laughs> that said, a quarter from 1913 could be worth up to $850. If you found one? Like if you got an actual quarter. Oh, cool. Yeah. All right. For like co uh, coin collectors yeah. and stuff. So Mr. Critz and Mr. Gubb read the same paper, mm -hmm. and one decided to go the cops' route, and one decided to go the robbers' route. Yeah, there was an so they were looking like think of the Village Voice, the back page where there's all these like nasty ads, and they one of them picked for one eight dollar hummers. Yes, he pulled the paper covered book from his pocket and handed it to Mr. Gubb. The title of the book was. The Complete Con Man by the King of the Grafters. Price, 25 cents. That there book, said Mr. Critz proudly, as if he himself had written it, tells everything a man needs to know to work every con game there is. Once I get it by heart, I won't be afraid to try any of them. Of course, I gotta start small. I can't hope to pull off a wiretapping game right at the start because... That has to have a gang. You don't know anybody you could recommend for a gang, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Not right offhand, said Mr. Gubb thoughtfully. If you wasn't going in the detective business, said Mr. Critz, you'd be just the feller for me. You look sort of honest and not as if you was too bright, and that counts a lot. Wow, ouch. <laughs> you got a nice, wholesome look about mm -hmm. you. Even in this here simple little shell game, I've got to have a partner. I got to have a partner I can trust. Uh, his, his accent has changed a lot, yeah. but, you know. He stopped, He's a con he's, man. It's fine. He stopped writing the, the story in dialect, so like, wait. Uh, what's going on? Now he's saying partner. Like, now he's like, I'm from the the country. It's fine. <laughs> he's he's a con man. His accent changes. He, he doesn't know what kind of con man he is yet. He's like, am I a pirate con man? Am I a western con man? Still trying am to find I, it. It's good. Am I find French? No, you won't be French. I promise you won't be French even if you want to be. I gotta have a partner I can trust so I can let him look like he was winning money off me, you see, he explained, moving to the washstand. This shell game is easy enough when you know how. I put three shells down like this on a stand, and I put the little rubber pea on the stand, and then I take up the three shells like this, two in one hand and one in the other, and I wave them around over the pea and make... And maybe push the pea around a little, and I say, Come on, come on, the hand is quicker than the eye. And all of a sudden, I put the shells down, and you think the pea is under one of them like that. 
don't think the pee is under one of them, said Mr. Cub. I seen it roll on the floor. <laughs> it did roll on the floor that time, said Mr. Critz apologetically. It most generally does for me yet. I ain't got it down to perfection yet. This is the way it ought to work. There she goes under the floor again. Went under the bed that time. Here she is. Now, the way she ought to work is... Ah, there she goes again. <laughs> you got to practice that game a lot before you try it onto folks in public, Mr. Kritz, said Mr. Gubb seriously. Don't I know that, said Mr. Kritz rather impatiently. Same as you've got to practice snooping, Mr. Gubb. Maybe you thought I didn't know you was snooping after me wherever I went last night. Did you? Asked Mr. Gubb with surprise plainly written on his face. I seen you every moment from 9 p.m. till 11, said Mr. Kritz. I didn't like it neither. I didn't think to annoy you, apologized Mr. Gubb. I was practicing lesson four. You wasn't supposed to know I was there at all. Well, I don't like it, said Mr. Kritz. "'Twas all right last night, but I didn't have nothing important on hand. But if I'd been working up a con game, the feller I was after would have thought it mighty strange to see a man following me everywhere like that. If you went about it quiet and obstructive, I wouldn't mind, but if I'd had a customer on hand and he'd seen you, it would have made him nervous. He'd think there was a crazy man following us.' I was just practicing, apologized Mr. Gubb. It won't be so bad when I get the hang of it. We all got to be beginners sometime. <laughs> I love that they're both terrible at what yeah. they want to be. It's so cute. <laughs> I guess so, said Mr. Kritz, rearranging the shells and the little rubber pea. Well, I put the pea down like this, and I dare you to bet which shell she's going to be under. And you don't bet, see? So I put the shells down, and you're willing to bet you see me put the first shell over the pea like this. So you keep your eye on that shell, and I move the shells around like this. She's under the same shell, said Mr. Cub. <laughs> well, yes, she is, said Mr. Kritz placidly. But she hadn't ought to be. By rights, she ought to sort of ooze out from under whilst I'm moving the shells around, and... I'd ought to sort of catch her in between my fingers and hold her there so you don't see her. And then when you say which shell she's under, she ain't under any shell. She's between my fingers. And when you put down your money, I tell you to pick up that shell. No. <laughs> so, when you put, so when you put down your money, I tell you to pick up that shell and there ain't anything under it. And before you can pick up the other shells, I pick one up. And I let the pea fall down on the stand like it, and it had been under the shell the whole time. That's the game. Only up to now, I ain't got the hang of it. <laughs> she won't... She won't ooze from under, and she won't stick between my fingers, and when she does stick, she won't drop at the right time. Except for that, you've got her all right, have you? Said Mr. Gubb. Except for that, said Mr. Kritz. And I'd have that, only my fingers are stubby. <laughs> <laughs> I love that he's like Mr. Gubb's like, yeah, you got everything, it's fine, except the entire except, premise except of the, the trick. Like, you know, the whole except point. the execution of it. Except, you know, doing the trick. 
You understand what the trick is supposed to be, but you do not have any of the sure. dexterity there to do it. There are a lot of things that I know how they're supposed to work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you how a lot of the magic tricks on the ship happened with the magic tricks. I have no fucking clue how they did it. <laughs> yeah. Also, like, I know how to run a sub four minute mile. Fast? Yeah, just put your feet down faster. I know how to lift 500 pounds. Yeah, just push harder. Just, you know, be stronger. <laughs> what was it you thought of having me do if I wasn't deteckative? That's not it. What was it you thought of having me do if I wasn't a deteckative, as Mr. Gubb? The work you'd have to do would be capping work, said Mr. Critz. Capper, that's the professional name for it. You'd guess which shell the ball was under. Well, that'd be easy the way you do it now, said Mr. Cobb. <laughs> I told you I'd got to learn it better, didn't I? Asked Mr. Critz impatiently. You'd be a capper. You'd guess which shell the pea was under. No matter which you guessed, I'd leave it under that one so you'd win. And you'd win $10 every time you bet, but not for keeps. That's why I got to have an honest capper. I can see that, said Mr. Gubb, but what's the use of letting me win if I've got to bring it back? That starts the boobs betting, said Mr. Chris. <laughs> I, I saw the word boobs in the sentence, and I had to pause for a second to be like, what the hell am I about to read? Boobs. Boobies. Boobs as in like the, easy the, marks. the idiots, yeah. as opposed to the boobily, boobies, like yep. the actual boobies. <laughs> the boobs. We're back in the we're back in the day when they used the funny words like hot hot tomatoes and boobs. <laughs> the boobs see how you look to be winning, and they want to win too, but they don't. When they bet, I win. That ain't a square game," said Mr. Gubb seriously. "Is it? A crook ain't expected to be square," said Mr. Critz. "It stands to reason if a crook wants to be a crook, he's got to be crooked, ain't he?" Yes, of course, said Mr. Gubb. I hadn't looked at it that way. As far as I can see, said Mr. Critz, the more I know how a detective acts, the better off I'll be when I start in doing real business. Ain't that so? I guess till I get the hang of things better, I'll just stay right here. I'm glad to hear you say so, Mr. Critz, said Mr. Gubb with relief. I like you, and I like your looks, and there's no telling who I might get for a roommate next time. I might get someone who wasn't honest. So it was agreed, and Mr. Critz stood over the washstand and manipulated the little rubber pea and the three shells while Mr. Gubb sat on the edge of the bed and studied Lesson 11 of the Rising Sun Detective Agency's Correspondence School of Detecting. When presently Mr. Critz learned to work the little pea neatly, he urged Mr. Gubb to take the part of Capper, and each time Mr. Gubb won, he gave him a $5 bill. Then Mr. Gubb posed as a boob. <laughs> How would you pose as a boob? Just roll up into a ball and put like a little, little, little dimple on your head? Yeah, I suppose it depends. I think I might slowly stick my tongue out. Is that the nipple? Mm -hmm. It's a very tiny nipple compared to the rest of your body. <laughs> or maybe I'm just a really big boob compared to the nipple. Mm. Well, and the nipple itself is never terribly big. It's possible that my face is the areola. <laughs> How Although would you, listener, is, pose as a boob? It is a little uneven. I feel like that's probably a doctor's <laughs> visit.
Well, all boobs are uneven. Right, but if it's that uneven and lumpy, it's probably a doctor's visit. Probably, unless it's always been like that. And then it's just what it is. It's just what it is. Just this is what it is. You know, those boobs that feel like a sack of potatoes. (laughs) Anyway, back to boobs. So then Mr. Gubb posed as a boob, and Mr. Kritz won all the money back again, beaming over his spectacle rims and chuckling again and again until he burst into a fit of coughing that made him red in the face and did not cease until he had taken a big drink of water out of the wash pitcher. Never had he seemed more like a kindly old gentleman from behind the candy counter of a small village. He hung over the washstand, manipulating the little rubber pea as if fascinated. Ain't it curious how a feller catches on to a thing like that all at once, he said after a while. If it hadn't been that I was if it hadn't been that I was so anxious, I might have fooled with that for weeks and weeks and not gotten anywheres with it. I do wish you could be my capper a while anyway, until I could get one. I need all my time to study, said Mr. Gubb. It ain't easy learning detecting by mail. <laughs> Yeah, I bet it's not. (laughs) Pshaw, now, said Mr. Kritz. I'm real sorry. Maybe if I pay you for your time and trouble five dollars a night? How say? Mr. Gubb considered. Well, I don't know, he said slowly. I sort of hate to take money for doing a favor like that. Now, there ain't no need to feel that way, said Mr. Kritz. Your time's worth something to me. It's worth a lot to me to get the hang of this gold brick game. Once I get the hang of it, it won't be no trouble for me to sell gold bricks like this one for all the way from $1,000 up. I paid 1500 for this one myself, and I got it cheap. <clears throat> That's a good profit for this brick. Ain't worth a cent over $100. <laughs> Wait, so he... Spent $1,500 on a brick that's actually not worth more than 100 Well, he said earlier that he's been conned a bunch of times. <laughs> and that's why he already had the gold that's brick. That's why he has it. Yeah, that's, that's, yeah, there it is. Okay, I'm caught up again. This brick ain't worth a cent over $100, and I know, for I took it to the bank after I bought it, and that's what they was willing to pay me for it. So it's easy with a few dollars for me to have help whilst I'm learning. I can easy afford to pay you a few dollars and to pay a friend of yours the same. Well now, said Mr. Gubb, I don't know but what. I might as well make a little of that way as any other. I got a friend, he stopped short. You don't aim to sell the gold brick to him, do you? (laughs) Mr. Kritz's eyes opened wide behind their spectacles. Lord's sake, no, he said. <laughs> well, I got a friend that may be willing to help out, said Mr. Gubb. What do you have to do? You or him, said Mr. Kritz, would be the come on and pretend to buy the brick, and you or him would pretend to help me sell it. Maybe you better have the brick, because you can look stupid, and the feller that's got the brick has got to look that. <clears throat> I can look anyway, almost, said Mr. Gubb with pride. <laughs> Do tell, said Mr. Kritz, and so it was arranged that the first rehearsal of the gold brick game would take place the next evening. But as Mr. Gubb turned away, Mr. Kritz deftly slipped something into the student detective's coat pocket. Uh Uh-oh. 
It was toward noon the next day that Mr. Critz, peering over his spectacles and avoiding as best he could the pails of paste, the pails of paste, uh. <laughs> entered the parlor of the vacant house where, oh, oh the, the paste. The paper, paste that he used for putting up for the wallpaper. Putting up wallpaper. There we go. So we now know he is definitely a uh, wallpaper hanger. Well, he said something about, I got a couple yeah. more houses to decorate yeah. too, yeah. But now we definitely know. Yeah. Entered the parlor of the vacant vacant house where Mr. Gubb was at work. I just come around, said Mr. Critz rather reluctantly, to say you better not say nothing to your friend. I guess the deal's off. Sean, how, said Mr. Gubb. You don't mean so. I don't mean nothing in the way of aspersions, you mind, said Mr. Critz with reluctance. But I guess we better call it off. Of course, so far as I know, you are all right. I don't know what you're getting at, said Mr. Gubb. Why don't you say it? <laughs> that was my belly. <laughs> that was me digesting Jennifer Aniston's salad. <laughs> so she was a slocum. <laughs> well, I've been bunkoed so often, said Mr. Crit. Seems like anyone can get money from me anytime in any way, and I got to thinking it over. I don't know anything about you, do I? And here I am, going to give you a gold brick that cost me $1,500 and let you go out and wait until I come for it with your friend. And, well, what's you to stop from just going away with the brick and never coming back? Mr. Gubb looked at Mr. Critz blankly. I've went and told my friend, he said. He's all ready to start in. I hate it to have to say it, said Mr. Critz. But when I come to count over them bills I lent you to cap the shell game with, there was a $5 one short. I know, said Mr. Gubb, turning red. And if you go over there to my coat, you'll find it in my pocket, all ready to hand back to you. I don't know how I come to keep it in my pocket. Must have missed it when I was handing you back the rest. <laughs> well, I had a notion it was that way, said Mr. Critz kindly. You look like you was honest, Mr. Gubb, but a $1,000 gold brick that any bank will pay $100 for? I gotta get out of this way of trusting everybody. Mr. Critz was evidently distressed. If twas anybody else but you, he said with an effort, I'd make him put up $100 to cover the cost of the brick like that whilst he had it. There, I've said it, and I guess you're mad. I ain't mad, protested Mr. Gubb. Long as you're going to pay me and Pete and it's business, I ain't so set against putting up what the brick is worth. Mr. Critz heaved a deep sigh of relief. You don't know how good that makes me feel, he said. I was almost losing what faith in mankind I had left. Mr. Gubb ate his frugal evening meals at the pie wagon. Ooh, I want to go to the pie wagon. I like pie. Mmm, <laughs> pie. It's probably like those old, like, meat pies. And yeah, yummy, yummy. I, want, mm. I want shepherd's pie for dinner and then cherry pie afterwards. Okay. I just want pie. I just, we can just have pie food. We don't have any pie crust. Yes, we do. Oh, yeah, we do have one. We do have pie. We, we have, have nothing pie to crust. put in the pie. But we can figure something out. We could. We, what kind of potatoes did you buy? Sweet potatoes. We could do sweet potatoes and chicken. Could make sweet potato pie. Sweet potato pie. <laughs> it's basically pumpkin pie. <laughs> yeah, except with sweet potatoes. Yum. Anyway, away from the pie wagon. 
So Mr. Gubb's eating his frugal evening meal at the Pie Wagon on Willow Street, just off Main, where, by day, Pie Wagon Pete dispensed light viands, and Pie Wagon Pete was the friend he had invited to share Mr. Critz's generosity. The seal of secrecy had been put on Pie Wagon Pete's lips before Mr. Gubb offered him the opportunity to accept or decline, and when Mr. Gubb stopped for his evening meal, Pie Wagon Pete, now off-duty was waiting for him. The story of Mr. Critz and his amateur con business had amused Pie Wagon Pete. He could hardly believe such utter innocence existed. Perhaps he did not believe it existed for he had come from the city and he had had shady companions before he had landed in Riverbank. Ooh, Riverbank. It's like sounds like he's in Iowa. This is like River City. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if they're supposed to be in Yeah, I don't know where they we haven't said where they are. Yeah. I mean, the the newspaper was from Ohio. Mm-hmm. So, who knows? But it's correspondence class. That could be anywhere. That could you could be, be in anywhere. California. He was a sharp-eyed, red-headed fellow with a hard fist and a scar across his face. And when Mr. Gubb had told him of Mr. Critz and his affairs, he had seen an opportunity to shear a country lamb. Oh, no. Pie right, wagon so- pizza con, man. Yeah. <laughs> oh, no. I knew it. Never trust a redhead. It's true. How's it go for tonight, Philo? He <laughs> asked Sister Gubb, taking a stool next to Mr. Gubb, while the night man drew a cup of coffee. Quite well, said Mr. Gubb. Everything is arranged satisfactory. I'm to be on the old houseboat by the wharf house on the levee at nine with it. He glanced at the night man's back and lowered his voice. And Mr. Critz will bring you there. Nine, eh, said Pie Wagon. I meet him at your room, do I? You meet him at the Riverbank Hotel at 845, said Mr. Gubb, like it was a real thing. I'm going over to my room now and give him the money. What money, said Pie Wagon Pete quickly. Well, you see, said Mr. Gubb, he sort of hated to trust the trust it out of his hands without a deposit. It's the only thing he has, so I thought I'd put up a hundred dollars. He's all right. Oh, sure, said Pie Wagon. A hundred dollars, eh? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, it's the right voice. Yep. (laughs) He looked at Mr. Gubb, who was eating a piece of apple pie, hand-to-mouth fashion, and studied him in a new light. One hundred dollars, eh? He repeated thoughtfully. You give him a hundred dollar deposit now when he meets you at nine, and me at eight forty-five, and the train leaves for Chicago at eight forty-three, halfway between the houseboat and the hotel. Say, Gubby, what does this old guy look like? Mr. Gubb, albeit with a tongue unused to description, delineated Mr. Critz as best he could, and as he proceeded, Pie Wagon Pete became interested. Pinkish and bald? Top of his head like a hard-boiled egg. <laughs> he ain't got a scar across his face. The dickens he has, short and plump and a regular nice old grandpa. Blue eyes? Say, did he have a coffin spell and choke red in the face? Well, sir, for a brand new detective, you've done well. Listen, Jim, Gubby's got the hard-boiled egg. What? What? <laughs> We're going to find out. Apparently, Mr. Critz is a famous con man yes. called the Hard Boiled Egg. Yeah, and uh, apparently, uh, 
Pie Wagon Pete is a detective. <laughs> By the sounds of it, yeah. Um, the nightman almost dropped his cup of coffee. Go away, he said. Old hot. Old High boiled himself? That's right, and they caught him with the goods. Say, listen, Gubby. For five minutes, Pie Wagon Pete talked while Mr. Gubb sat with his mouth wide open. See, said Pie Wagon at last, and don't you mention me at all. Don't mention no one. Just say to the chief, and having trailed him this far, Mr. Whitaker, and arranged to have him tooked with the goods, it's up to you. See? And as soon as you say that, have him send a couple of bulls with you. And if they can do it, they'll nab old hard-boiled just as he takes your cash. And old sleuth and Sherlock Holmes won't be in it with you when tomorrow morning's papers come out. Get it? Mr. Gubb got it. When he entered his bedroom, Mr. Critz was waiting for him. It was slightly after 8 o'clock, perhaps 8.15. Mr. Critz had what appeared to be a gold brick neatly wrapped in newspaper, and he looked up with his kindly blue eyes. He had been reading The Complete Con Man and had pushed his spectacles up on his forehead as Mr. Gubb entered. I done that brick up for you, he said, indicating it with his hands, so it wouldn't glitter while you was going through the street. If word got passed around there was a gold brick in town, folks might sort of get suspicious like. Uh, Nice night for going out, ain't it? I got a letter from my wife this afternoon, he chuckled. (laughs) She says she hopes I'm doing well. Sally would have a fit if she knew what business I was going into. Well, time's to get along. I brung the money, said Mr. Gubb, drawing it from his pocket. Don't seem hardly necessary, does it, said Mr. Critz mildly. But I suppose it's just as well. Thank you, Mr. Gubb. I'll just pile into my coat. Mr. Gubb had picked up the gold brick, and now he let it fall. Once more, the door flew open, but this time it opened for three stalwart policemen, whose revolvers pointed unwaveringly at Mr. Critz. The plump little man gave one glance and put up his hands. All right, boys, you got me, he said in quite another voice and allowed them to seize his arms. He paid no attention to the police, but as Mr. Gubb, who was tearing... So that's why his accent kept changing. Yeah, he was, he was putting, he was faking it the whole time. Ha <laughs> ha, it's like I knew all along. All right, boys, you got me, he said in quite another voice and allowed them to seize his arms. He paid no attention to the police, but as Mr. Gubb, who was tearing the wrapper from what proved to be but a common vitrified paving brick, he looked long and hard. Say, said Mr. Critz to Mr. Gubb, I'm the goat. You stung me, all right. You worked me to a finish. I thought I knew all of you from Burns down, but you're a new one to me. Who are you anyway? Mr. Gubb looked up. Me? He said with pride. Why, why, I'm Gubb, the foremost detective of Riverbank, Iowa. The end. So we're in Iowa. We're in Iowa, which makes a fuck ton of sense. I don't know why everyone had New York accents at one point, but Gubb's voice made sense. Yeah. He sounded like Winthrop all grown up. And once he got rid of his uh, his lisp in the, in, the, in the Music Man. Yeah. I mean, Riverbank and River City are kind of probably the same place. They very well could be, yeah. Um, that was delightful. That was fun. Um, 
I'm I'm curious what else uh what else Philo. Well, this is the first one, right? This is the first one. So this this is, is the introduction to this character, yeah. yeah. Um I kind of love that he didn't do shit. Nope. <laughs> His friend like to, like he was going to do it. <laughs> that's so that's um the little snippet about the character that I read which is what made me decide, okay, if this is the right length, we're going to do one of these yeah. stories is that he is essentially a detective who desperately wants to be Sherlock Holmes or Poirot or like one of those guys. And he's got all the gumption in the world and he sticks to it and he works hard, but he is really bad. He is not smart. He is not observant. He is not assertive. Like he's just... He's just a sweet guy. And so he accidentally solves all these crimes and like stumbles upon the right answers. I love it. You know, that's adorable. Well, that's great. I mean, uh, our writer, whose name was again... Uh, Ellis, Ellis. Ellis Parker Butler. Mr. Butler. Um, that is a niche that we have not read before. Yeah. Like, we've read a lot of very brilliant, like Poirot, Holmes, uh, the... Uh, Lupin. Lupin. Like, yeah. all these, like, very brilliant. And then, like, I think of, like, currently, like, Enola Holmes. Yeah. And, like, all these... Uh, Wednesday Adams, like they're all very good at what they do. Whereas you don't, you rarely get to see a character who is so likable and you want him to be really good, but he's just so bad. At yeah. It. This is, but he can, I'm guessing he continues to solve cases by accident. Yeah. Like, so this is, this is a, this, this character falls into the comedy mystery genre yeah. much more along the lines of um, uh, the movie Murder Mystery. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, um, which is so good. Which is great. Uh, where it's, it's on Netflix, y'all. If you haven't watched it and you like mysteries, murder mystery, it's Jennifer Aniston. It's Jennifer Aniston <laughs> and her salad. There, there it is. There's the there's the synchronicity of this episode. Uh, Jennifer Aniston and uh, Adam Sandler and uh, amazing cast, actually. But yeah, go check it out. But yeah, it's like accidental solving. Yeah. And in in that one, like the, the, the people trying to solve the crime are actually quite good at solving crimes. But the point is that it's it. It's it feels like this feels like it is a parody of the genre that is the serialized detective mystery, but is still in and of itself a good detective mystery. Yeah. Like that was an interesting twist. I didn't know what was coming. It was an interesting twist. It was cool. This egg thing going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I love that he enlisted a friend who happens to be a like who happened to know person themselves. Yeah. And was like, well, shit. Let's take him down. And he goes, and he knew his friend was studying to be a detective. So he goes, dude, you go, you go close the case. Yep. Don't mention me. So Pie Pete might not be super sketchy. He might just know about he just this guy. knows people. And he's like, I don't want to take any credit. You go get your detective thing. If you're selling pies on the street of, well, I guess, River of Riverbank, Iowa. Riverbank, Iowa. You're probably not that sketchy. <laughs> like, um. I do love that con men come to Iowa all the time. Like, thinking sure. Harold Hill just rolls into Iowa and sells fake instruments. And well, this, and this know. guy is apparently like the Notorious. best, the best worst con man ever. Yeah. Because if the guy who sells pies in Riverbank, Iowa, <laughs> can peg you as this famous East Coast con man yeah. by rough description, yeah. Maybe it's time to give up the game. Or maybe you've been doing the same game too long. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, oh, my aunt got taken by that over in uh, Mason City. I should, uh, must be that guy again. Say what? He said he's a Nigerian prince? Yeah. All right. Come here. <laughs> 
that one. That one was fun. And I got to do lots of dialects. Yeah. <laughs> Many dialects for one character, but it turned out he wasn't any of those dialects anyway. So <laughs> I win. <laughs> give, give me my Oscar. Yeah. I enjoyed that one. What did you think, listener? Did you have fun with that story? I did. I thought I it was did. cool. And I now know what it's like to pose as a boob. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, let us know what you thought about that one. Email us at 5050artsproduction at gmail.com or message us on social media. Just look for Campfire Classics Podcast and you'll find us on any of those media thingies. And when you email, wait, what was the other thing that I wanted to hear from them? Oh, yeah. So when you email us to uh, tell us what you thought of this story and you email us to let us know what TV show you would like to watch with us. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, please include this week's secret passcode, which is Jennifer Aniston's salad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's quite delicious. <laughs> that's it. That's all that's I got. All. That's Anything all from I you? Got. Nah. Great. Well, then, until next week, this has been Campfire Classics, where we try to read those books that look really good on your shelf. sandwich the episode with more uh, uh, plagiarism of the Friends theme song. Great. I love it. <laughs> That'll work. Um, in the immortal words of Cat Stevens, peace out, bitches. <laughs> <laughs>